0: Hey everyone, before this week's video, I do want to put a quick disclaimer on here. None of the content discussed tonight should be misconstrued as investment advice, um, or any advice really. (laughs) This is only for informational and entertainment purposes. For real investment advice, obviously, reach out to a financial advisor or an investment professional. All right, let's get into it. I have directed Secretary Connolly to suspend temporarily the convertibility of the dollar into gold. We print it digitally. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. So we, you know, we as a central bank, we have the ability to create money. What does it mean for you? (laughs) We also print actual currency. But remember, our, our economy has got very strong long-term fundamentals that, that actually increases the money supply perfect agreement on macroeconomics now that just sounds so romantic this is a podcast dedicated to exploring the money that rules the world and the guns that back it this is guns and money Welcome everyone to the uh, second video. This is Guns and Money, I'm Dan Willis, uh, and this is the second video in a a talk that I have titled Cigarettes and Gin, Surviving the Great Reset. Um, I hope everyone is well, I hope everyone is healthy, It's been a crazy few days for me at work this week. I haven't gotten a ton of sleep. I'm a little bit exhausted. But that being said, I was super pumped to get in front of the mic and the camera tonight to put together or to present to you what I've been putting together since I uploaded the first video last week. Uh, Thank you so much for your support. Uh, The response has been pretty big. Um, At least in my estimation, I was expecting, you know, like 20 people to check this out. But um, yeah, we've done well over 100 views in a week and I'm getting lots of questions and, and striking up lots of dialogue with, with folks. So thanks if you shared it on Twitter, um, Neil Cash Carry, you know, was one of, the, one of my favorite handles that I follow that was um, a good pal and, and threw it into his feed. But uh, yeah, thanks for sharing it. Thanks for chatting about it. Uh, I'm really excited to bring the second of what will be, um, I think, around weekly content. Not not settled on a published date or anything like that, but weekly I think is good. There's enough going on right now. I'm keeping myself busy um, to where I think I can get out a video a week, about an hour's worth of a show a week. So, that being said, what else? We've got a couple of other housekeeping details before we, we break into it. Um, if you subscribed, to the RTB Mag channel. I I hosted the first version of this video on an old YouTube channel. It's an old project from several years ago. Uh, I appreciate that. I I saw a handful of subscribers pop that button there. Um, That's awesome. Can you go do that at the real channel now? (laughs) Uh, Guns and Money on YouTube, you'll find it. I'll put the links up on Twitter and Facebook. and if you want to get in touch with the show in the more formal sense, you can email me at gunsandmoney20 at gmail.com. We'll use that uh, that email for the show. So um, like I said, I'm really excited about tonight's deck because I think the first video is giving you some really basic ground level stuff and going more into the why and more into some of the bigger trends and cycles that, that we are, I think... Uh, going through from an energy perspective and a sustainability perspective. But tonight, we are going to get into the real nuts and bolts of the World Economic Forum's framework for this reset and what that means and what it could like, uh, excuse me, could look like coming out the other side of it. So uh, I have gone through um, Klaus Schwab, who is the founder of the World Economic Forum and the current, I think, executive director, whatever that title means and Thierry Malloray sounds pretty French, um, they wrote the book COVID-19, The Great Reset. We're gonna go over a synopsis, what my thoughts are, and kind of some questions I have, and then we're gonna break into their actual plan. Before I do that, I do have to give a pretty big shout out to my lovely wife. She has been beyond instrumental in helping me organize tonight's chat and giving me some, some really positive feedback from the first video. And actually, if any of you, um, listening, did reach out, or I did ask you, hey, what'd you think? And you gave me some constructive feedback. I want to thank you. I appreciate your thoughts, um, both the positive and the negative, and uh, look to incorporate some of the lessons learned as we move on. I have done shows before. I've done other podcasts, but I do have to admit that uh, the rust is not completely shaken off it's been a couple of years since since I've done this and I've never really done a solo show for any extended period of time so that's a little bit new um, so tonight's chat before before I open the deck up, we'll just kind of quickly recap what I spoke about last week. And if you haven't watched the first video, now would be a great time to go hop over there and check that out because you're gonna need some of the foundational stuff uh, to have a better understanding of tonight's content. And not that you wouldn't get it without it, but I, it'll, it'll give you a more well-rounded picture. Um, the, the wave tops are this. We have structural problems from an economic standpoint a, an environment standpoint and a sustainability standpoint. We, we have an infinite growth model and a lot of systems, systems of, of debt money and banking and capital markets that are kind of predicated on an infinite growth model. Uh, but we have a finite planet. And at some point, it is simply math that those two dynamics will collide. Um, secondly is we have, we have political and social instability. Um, and we have it in a way that I don't think we have really seen. People always kind of refer back to the 60s because we had some tumultuous times back then with Vietnam being pretty unpopular, um, the economy kind of sucking, and um, I don't know, copious amounts of drug use, <laughs> maybe where there wasn't so much leading up to that particular decade. But I think this is different. Um, I really do think this is different from from some some other standpoints. But in any event, at any event, um, we we definitely have social and political problems as you're seeing them unfold, and the economic inequality piece is also pretty huge. I know a lot of times this that that phrase gets associated with with politic, with left politics or or um, thinkers on that side of the spectrum. And I, and I wanna be clear about my, my view of economic, economic inequality. It's not a political issue from how I see it. What, it could be potentially slowed down with, with politics and maybe the right policies, but really it's, it's kind of humans being humans where at some point we stop playing um, what Ben Hunt calls cooperative, positive sum games, and we start playing um, zero or negative sum games that are competitive. And we start kind of fighting with each other. And even Ray Dalio, who wrote a tome about um, the cycles of stability and chaos throughout history since like 600 AD, which is, I'm not all the way through it yet, but it's pretty interesting. He he kind of spoke to that too in, in the opening of that piece. Um, we have a lot of we have a lot of just inherent humanity, <laughs> I guess, kind of in us to where we, we, we think we have progressed past a certain le- you know basic level of of barbarism. And I, I I don't think that's true. Humans are always kind of varying levels of of uh, barbarians, and we just really get at hiding it in line to ourselves. But this is this will bring you up to up to speed in terms of what we kind of went into more detail about in the first video like I said do watch that if you haven't seen it and then you can just pick back up here and rejoin us um, and I did want to add a quick piece to this in the first video we did not talk about trust um, from a quantitative perspective in not just the government at large but I would say more our, our institutional f- fabric of society here in the United States. This is a, uh, a Pew Research Center survey that was done, looks like from July 27th to August 2nd, 2020. Mm-hmm. It was just their public trust and federal government survey. And basically what this chart is, this is the percentage of respondents who say they trust the federal government to do what is right, Just about always, slash, most of the time. So we're we're at the lows. We did bounce off them a little bit, if you can believe it. (laughs) After 2016's surprise, there was a little bit of bounce in trust in government. Um, That's surprising. But in any event, you can see in this chart, and, and I think you can kind of feel it, and I don't want to put too much weight on just general feelings, but folks just don't trust the institutions and the edifices that we have to interact with when it comes to the government, or really even a lot of times when it comes to just massive, like oligarchical companies and organizations. It's just our interactions with these institutions and and governments and and what have you have increasingly felt one-sided over the past maybe couple of decades. They're just, I, I personally, I feel like I have to go through a ridiculous amount of nonsense, um, whether it be through, you know, t- to register a vehicle or to like, just do, do to interact with the state, interact with these big agencies, and they try to make it simple sometimes with like an app, but it, it all just is getting a little bit cumbersome. And I don't have much trust in any of the folks that or any of the institutions that I really have to interact with on a regular basis. But you know, it's one of those things where you got, you've you got to go along to get along. And I, I do have mouths to feed and things to pay for and a life to, to build. So I, I put up with the, the crap I don't like, um, maybe with a tiny little bit of ray of hope somewhere in my, in my heart that maybe we'll get a chance to change that. But um, I would generally say that this trust score here from this Pew survey is not unearned. Whether your political predisposition is to the left, to the right, or some other um, more specific variant, generally speaking, you don't feel a whole lot of trust. And you have been seeing language among policymakers and leaders about restoring that trust. Um, Janet Yellen, who is the very interesting treasury pick for Joe Biden's Administration, um, she alluded to that in a speech she gave. I think it was today. I saw it on Twitter today. It was today or yesterday, talking about restoring trust. So it's even being acknowledge, acknowledged by some of the folks in the political sphere, um, and I that that means it must be pretty bad, right? If if the boss has to acknowledge it or the bosses, then. I'm sure the, the cries from, from the general population must be loud enough to, to be deafening. But um, I did want to just kind of add that because that's, that's some more context, I think, for the period that is unfolding in front of all of our eyes. Um, so, yeah, we've got it. So part two, second video, really excited to, to put this out to you guys. We covered the why. Now let's talk about how I think it is most likely that this great reset uh, plan is going to unfold, and and what areas it's going to impact, and what questions we should be asking. I was I had a thought when I was putting the show notes together, um, or I get change, editing them a little bit the other night. What I really want to focus on being as true to the Socratic method in this. Series of content as, as I possibly can, or just generally, let's just ask high-quality questions and judge either judge the explicit answers, judge the non-answers, or um, judge some of the context around how those questions are answered, and that that will probably serve us well. We might we're not going to get everything right here. I'm not. I'm not some kind of an autodidact or, or, or um, super special person. I'm honestly just infinitely curious, and don't have a lot of discipline to control that. <laughs> to put it uh, to put it frankly. So, and I apologize. I keep hitting the cord on the mic. I know that sends a shockwave through your guys' ears. Like I said, I still am shaking some of the rust off the old the old podcasting bones here. All right. Um, A couple of notes. I did pull all of this, either from the World Economic Forum and their website directly, that is weforum.org, forward slash great hyphen reset, or from COVID-19, The Great Reset, I did finish the book, um, it wasn't my favorite read in the world, but I'm glad I read it, and we're going to learn some stuff from it tonight. I'm going to give you a synopsis of that book. We are going to discuss the United Nations 2030 agenda. That is that is kind of the the goalposts for what the ultimate um, the ultimate end this reset is is kind of chasing. Well, at least according to their marketing materials. Um full disclosure that we're going to have to back into some of this stuff. The book itself doesn't spell it all out um, and the website and the policy papers they don't spell it all out. Now there are outside sources referenced in part of um the great resets webpage on on uh, wFweforum.org. That, that draw from other places third-party sources I did read some of them um, it's a lot of it's a lot of material and it, it starts to get really kind of heavy policy paper really quickly and I, I don't want to get lost looking at the uh, the tree and miss the forest here we want to focus on kind of the the big meat of what I think the impacts will be of this plan so they don't give us a plan specifically they give us, the reason for a plan, and they give us what that plan is going to achieve according to them. So we're going to reverse engineer what I think that plan will actually look like in terms of a loose sequence of events, and really just markers that I think you should look for that will give us confirmation, not only about further confirmation that this is going down, which I think there's plenty to to make a 60 or 70% confidence guess on that right now I mean I would say it's pretty probable that that this is in the works what's what's unknown is how does it does it work and how does it or doesn't it work Um, so that's the quick outline of tonight's chat let's talk about the gentleman that wrote COVID-19 the Great Reset Um, Klaus Schwab who I did mention is the executive director and founder of the World Economic Forum. He founded it in 1971 or somewhere in the 70s under a different name and changed the name in the 80s. Kind of been an academic his whole life. Um, oh, hear I, I have it on the slide. It did begin as the European Management Forum in 1971. This gentleman uh, is well credentialed. He has a PhD in economics from the University of Freiburg and a PhD in engineering from ETH Zurich. I don't know either of those institutions, um, but getting your PhD is is tough. I'm sure that was a a difficult grind. So he, he's well credentialed. Generally seems like he kind of keeps a low profile. I didn't find a whole lot of um, crazy interesting stuff about him. It doesn't seem like he ever traveled far outside of academic circles. So I didn't see um, any real successful work in markets or business or industry. Um, He just kind of stuck to education and and policy crafting, perhaps, after getting to a certain um, stature within academia. But, you know, not a super exciting background, didn't go super deep. Um, He did have a connection to the UN sustainable development goals. I have it cited at a oh shoot, it's it's supposed to be here in this in this presentation, but it's not loading for whatever reason. It looks like some of the um, let me see if I can fix that really quickly. I think we've got time. Tonight's chat's going to be a lot more focused. Um, I'm not going to ramble as much, although, you know, I do occasionally ramble. Uh, looks like we are running uh, probably about 10 minutes in. So let's let this refresh. I apologize for the uh, slow internet speeds. I am on DSL, I should have hooked up my hotspot here. And actually, I might just go into post and edit this out, this is taking a minute. Go. you are ready and it did come back oh you magnificent magnificent bastard okay all right we are back in action sorry about that little edit there I had an issue getting some of the content to load but we're back here so yeah as I was talking about he has an interesting connection with the United Nations sustainable development goals in that in the mid 90s he was a high-level advisor to the board on sustainable development it's it's not I'm not look it's not like a smoking gun of anything I'm just trying to give you a little bit of color about some some stuff I found about the author, and it'll it'll play in it'll play in a little bit later when we talk about the sustainable development goals. Um, here is the co-author Thierry Mallory. This gentleman is a little bit more interesting to me. Um, just kind of off off the bat, he's a little bit more public. Um, he's a former investment banker with a firm. IJ Partners, Informed Judgment Partners, I think they're European somewhere in Swiss, yeah, and, and Geneva. He writes a monthly newsletter called The Monthly Barometer. It's kind of just like, uh, if you're anywhere near markets, lots of people pay for, I guess, the quality strategic thoughts of from certain individuals on where they think markets are going and kind of what their discretionary takes are on certain fronts. Um, I pay for a little bit of that to myself. So I get it. He he just seems a little bit more interesting. I didn't read any of his work yet. I think I might do a little bit of digging just to kind of see how this guy thinks a little bit better. I don't know which parts of the book were written by whom or how it all worked out. But he does have pretty extensive ties with the World Economic Forum. Um, and yeah, I've, I've I've linked everything here. So if you guys want to go check out the uh, content for yourself, you are um, able to find a quick resource for that. So I I broke kind of the synopsis down into the three main sections that the book, which is more like an essay, is broken down into. So those three sections are the macro reset, the micro reset, and the individual reset. And the way they look at that is, the macro reset is the the changes in the author's opinion needed to address macro global systemic existential problems like the pandemic i don't see the pandemic as an existential problem in terms of the existence of humanity i do see the pandemic as an existential problem with an economic lens because if you're going to react in certain ways to um to fight a pandemic, especially if you think it's actually gonna wipe humanity off the planet, which is a little bit, that seems a little sensational. But if you're going to do that, if you're gonna put anything on the table, you're gonna sacrifice your economy, you're going to sacrifice small business, or what have you, it's just a big price to pay. And I think we are starting to learn that price. Um, We'll see how that unfolds. But the macro resets the big stuff, climate change, pandemics, health issues, Global sustainability issues uh, like running out of sand or or running out of uh, oil that's that's still profitable uh, to get out of the ground um, or destroying our soil destroying our, our water um, those are macro issues and i I agree a little bit there we we live as awful stewards we live as kind of like a Kind of like a virus ourselves, in that we just consume and consume and trash and trash. We don't regenerate. We we just deplete, and we need to shift that mindset into one of regeneration. Um, the next level down, they talk about the micro reset, and what is included under that that subheader is kind of industry level reset. And and the individual firm or company level reset like what what are industries going to have to uh, contend with in this post COVID nineteen world What are companies going to have to consider um, in terms of environmental impact, social impact, governance issues, just lot they. they <laughs> They, they paint with a very broad brush in this book um, it's not very to the point but you know you can you can kind of get there lastly the individual resets the most local this is where I think i have the most to say um at least at this point because i this is what impacts you and me not just you some amorphous blob out there in some country but no, i mean the individuals that i know personally that that are watching this or listening to this you know, This is what I wanna get in front of you to help you understand what kind of decisions we're all gonna be maybe forced to uh, start making and and what kind of decisions we can make now to put ourselves in better positions so we're not left without other options or outs, as as poker players like to uh, to put it. So um, the general flow of things is we're gonna start with the big picture, the macro reset, and just follow that all the way down to the close of the show. Um, it's predicated on, on, in the author's view, three defining characteristics about what, what exists today. And generally speaking, our economic and social systems, our governance systems, they are all very interdependent. Societies are all very high velocity, and they, they approach this on a number of fronts. They it talked a lot about instant gratification being a, a marker of a high velocity society where everything just needs to be now. Um, I have DSL out here in the country. It has forced me to become less of a high velocity person because I don't have the bandwidth a lot of times to to do uh, what I'm used to doing. And I've, I've noticed that. I've, I've It's definitely showed up on my radar. So, um, I think they're right about how they frame the, the macro reset. These, these things are clearly defining characteristics of a lot of our big systems. And then lastly, complexity. And this one was the most interesting to me. They Neither Klaus nor Thierry, there was no real argument against these things. There was no, there was no claim made to or argument offered to, to say, hey, maybe we should rethink our interdependence or rethink our velocity or complexity. And really, they, it almost seemed to be kind of the stance of, "Hey, all these things are probably going to increase. Everything else being equal, so we should find ways to um, have that not be so disruptive." Now, the com- the complexity piece is interesting because there is a, an old economist. His last name is Minsky. His first name is escaping me, um, but he had kind of a he had kind of a theory on complex systems that basically the more complex a system gets, or as a system grows in complexity, it also grows in fragility. The more interdependence there is, the more nodes there are touching all the other pieces and and actors in an economy or in a society, the more potential points of failure there are, and the more inherently fragile that system becomes. And I think this this scratches at something that is not often discussed in the West these days and that is the natural limits of what we're capable of it may very well be that humanity whether it's through evolution evolutionary means or, or some other means has kind of this inherent like fail-safe in it where um, we can only get so complex before we have to have a little bit of a setback, and and maybe that's to keep us from like nuking the universe. I don't know. It probably isn't far from from the truth, but um, I I found that really interesting that they mentioned complexity, and that, that my my thesis is kind of, or my my general view is that we need to. Be a little bit less complex. Like the complex, the level of complexity we already have in society today is having a detrimental impact to to the individual humans and and, and the communities that we populate and um, how we interact with with other folks. I, I think we need to to pump the brakes there a little bit. But one of the big arguments found throughout the section on the macro reset is how covid 19 has just accelerated awareness it's accelerated the need to address these things and perhaps it is accelerated it has accelerated the opportunity to 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 push some stuff through that we otherwise maybe would have taken a longer time to debate and discuss and and that's that's pretty critical because they can sneak some nasty stuff in there Um, we've seen supply chain disruptions especially in imported goods. Um, and generally, you saw, this is a chart from uh, the FRED database out of the St. Louis Federal Reserve branch. But this is uh, real imports of goods and services. So not a great comparable. You would really just like to look at goods, but all the shortages of things. Um, we've had limits on, on some meat products because of, I think that's mostly COVID at the, the Smithfields, the big commercial food processors. But there have been interruptions. Um, a lot of interruptions. Longer wait times, ships backed up at the ports of LA and and, uh, up in Alaska for overflow. Transportation disruptions, obviously. Some folks, a lot of the country was heavily persuaded or a lot of effort went into persuading a lot of folks not to enjoy any kind of um, get together for Thanksgiving this year, which, you know, that, that was tough for me. Thanksgiving is a big holiday in our family. It's, it's kind of our main one on my dad's side. And, um, you know, we did, we did get together with folks. Um, we've got a, a solid, basically what it came down to is, you know, the only person in the family that was taking real risk was my grandmother. And she was like, I want to see you guys. I said, you know what, grandma, if you abdicate any and all guilt from anything happening to you that may have come from one of us, yeah, we'll we'll do it. She's a she's a tough old lady from from the hills of West Virginia, so I think she was she was just ready to see us, and it was it was a good time. But and whatever decision you made, I'm, I'm not here to harp on you for that. I you you did what you thought you had to do or what you thought was right, um, and whether I agree with it. It is really irrelevant. Um, we all have our views, but sometimes I just—I know you're just trying to get through all this crazy stuff, and I, and I really I'm just kind of over busting people's chops for you know not seeing things the way I see them. I want to I want to share what I think and how I think, but I I, I don't want to beat you over the head with it. So, um, but heavy heavy usage of COVID 19 being. The big catalyst here and and obviously working from home has changed things and um our, our purchasing habits have changed a little bit obviously look at the big the big box kind of kind of mega retailers amazon walmart like all these guys have done great yelp was the source of the statistic i cited last week about I ranged it fifty to seventy percent. Yelp says that sixty percent of small businesses that closed aren't coming back. Uh, that we I don't have the the frame of reference to understand that number. It's you are purposefully gutting your most important economic engine in terms of employment um, with with really haphazard. Thrown together policies. Uh, I, I just <sighs> it, it, it's just bizarre. It's bizarre to me. Um, the big thing here that they're really getting at is nonlinearity, and it's a fancy ten dollar word for basically discontinuous movement of things. We've talked about recency bias. We've it's, it's well known that people generally expect the next outcome to be pretty close to the most recent one and this is true in markets um, it's true in a lot of things whatever has happened to us recently we expect to be most likely to happen and you know what that generally is true except for about once every like 60 to 80 years you have these big tectonic shifts of power and wealth and um, you know the 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 paradigm of the age and if if you're not, a weirdo like me, always kind of looking for for those things, um, you, there's a good chance you're, you're going to miss it. Um, and really, there was nothing about this section of the book that, that the authors got wrong. I think there was heavy use of COVID-19 without a great understanding. This book was published in July, so it must have been written in the spring. We're still learning things that, that were said or thought we knew in the spring that. Turning out to not be true, uh, CNN's Jake Tapper just uh, on the China origin story about nine months later on that, buddy. Maybe maybe eleven, depending on who you listen to. But um, they're not wrong here. There was nothing. There was nothing um, that I had to shake my finger at here. And some of it was actually a little little bit information, informational. Um, but the the need for the macro reset is, I think, the real need. Beyond yeah, we are trashing the planet and living unsustainably, but. What they don't talk about is resource scarcity or they give it very, very scant attention. And this is huge because uh, the biggest competitors for resources really are nation states and those are the things with the most guns and soldiers and, um, and, and unilateral power. Um, and then the, the issues we've, we've already mentioned here. So what was still missing was nothing was discussed on how. How do they do this? How do they push this through? um that's that's the most important part if you ask me because if we don't know how we don't know what they're thinking about how then we 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 don't know what it looks like and we've got to have a roadmap for what it looks like um and it it was to the point where reading through this book and the material is like they either don't have a plan or they don't want us to know what the what the details are and and i'm almost positive they have a plan so i'm I'm, it's safe to say that the balance of probabilities rests with they just don't really want us to know the details because we might arbitrage that we might be free thinking free doing individuals and decide "I i want to do something different and and behave in a way that they're not prepared to um that they're not able to predict or prepared for in terms of planning and execution so um like I said, we're going to reverse engineer that at towards the end of this uh, this presentation here. Moving along, the micro reset, the the main trends here I wanted to mention because what this boils down to is just a major increase in government oversight and maybe like self-regulatory body oversight, like like Finra, if you're in the finance space, and that's basically just like. Everyone who's playing in the game is telling mom that, no, we're gonna, we're gonna play by the rules, mom, go go back inside. Um, so they can do their thing, right? But uh, there's definitely a big theme of, of increased regulation and, and I would maybe argue interference on the firm and industry level. Another big thing that I, I, they're not shy on is an increase in digitization. And why I think, well, what I mean is just creating more data digital data that is easily collected whether it be through a wearable or um, an implantable or corporate surveillance like with your your software that's one thing I think Microsoft just announced basically that Microsoft 360 or 365 or whatever that crap is called their new office suite is like chock-full of all of this corporate surveillance stuff to make sure that you can carrot and you know micro carrot and micro stick your employees when they're not Doing everything they should be doing, in your estimation, um, and they really emphasized again that increased partnership between private enterprise and public institutions. That <laughs> the only private enterprises that that you could, I would argue, legitimately pub, uh, partner with the public are the massive ones. You know, the best of breed industry leaders in all the industries that because they can afford that. And they have the clout, they they have some political power. Everybody else, it's just an enormous tax. That's what partnership means on, on private enterprise. It's going to be very expensive to, or it's going to be marginally more expensive to engage in the same business under a new governance framework. Um, there was lots of mention of stakeholder capitalism. Now I have a loose concept of this term. I am nowhere near well-versed on it, but. And there are things I get in it. So stakeholder capitalism is basically, instead of only caring about the shareholder, as I understand it, and returning uh, value and and dividends and and returns to the shareholders, we need to consider the environment as a stakeholder and the community that the business operates in, you might argue, as a stakeholder. Um, And I I would like to see more. Oddly enough, or or coincidentally enough, um, Klaus Schwab is writing a book called Stakeholder Capitalism, I think it comes out next year um and then esg you know the environmental social governance again there are nuggets of things that i can get behind in these but i just fear that the implementation of these policies and these regulations is going to be ham-fisted and heavy-handed like it always is when when you're doing something kind of by fiat at a big level um a, a big theme that they they touched on was conditional bailouts so This is effectively picking winners and losers through a bureaucratic process. This is, I have a major objection to this. Um, This is not how capital is allocated. This is not efficient for anyone. This is the picking and choosing of who gets bailout funds based on perhaps their adherence to what may or may not be ridiculous regulatory requirements. I don't know yet. I do have a bias but you know what it is (laughs) I'm not fooling anyone here but this is giving not only are we going to use the public purse to just you know bail out all the people who are probably already rich anyway um, but we're gonna we're gonna put strings on it to make sure you blow the right whistles and signal the right messages and maybe hire the right people, or don't hire the wrong, it's, uh, that, that just really set, set my ears up and kinda of set the alarms off. Um, and this is going to have a totally asymmetric impact on companies and industries in terms of size. The big guys will be fine, and the small and medium sized guys will get either bought, if they're really special, by the big guys, or totally taxed out of, of being competitive. With regulation and and whatever comes attached to uh, conditional bailouts or or perhaps uh, adherence to some kind of new stakeholder capitalism framework that that gets worked out behind the scenes, I, it, that's not a hard call to make. The there's been some sell side folks on Wall Street talking about uh, this is the first like K shaped recovery, you know, where one percent of us or maybe ten or fifteen percent does better because of our our proximity to the um, halls of power and wealth and the rest of us just kind of get screwed and I, I think think there's a high likelihood of, of that happening um, the last piece here the last section of, of kind of the synopsis was the individual reset this is what really has an impact on us um, they opened it with this this really, I thought it was kind of a silly appeal to our better angels and uh man I get it but there's only so much like come on man be good do good things like messaging I can kind of handle where it's you they're just platitudes you're just <laughs> it's just um, it's just rhetoric it, there's no meaning behind any of this crap anymore any of these messages like we're all in this together are we I don't know if you caught recently on Twitter, like the number of governors and like public health officials at like the county and city level that have totally flouted some of the lockdown measures that they put in place uh, on their populations. I mean, that's despicable. Just despicable and a total failure of integrity. It's leading from the rear. It's watching, watching your constituents bite the bullet while you kind of just do whatever you want. Um, uh, an appeal to our better, better angels in this section of the book was just kind of like, give me a break, buddy. I know you've got two PhDs, but I have some questions for the leadership. <laughs> you know? Appeal to my better angels? Like, yeah, okay, buddy. Um, it talked a lot about changing priorities, political priorities, social priorities, and obviously the, the big one here is redefining social contracts. They make several references to that idea. And they are very, very light on the details and the how. Uh, the social contract, in case you are unfamiliar, is is not an explicit contract. Uh, the original social contract theory, theorists were, were Althusius and Hobbes uh, and, and John Locke, or Locke, those are the ones I'm familiar with anyway. It's, it's the idea that, that there's always rulers. There's always a rulership in a, in a general population or a general public that are that are the rule. But there's also kind of this unspoken, and sometimes it's more spoken and sometimes it's it's less. But there's this, this tipping point that the ruler knows it and the people know it. That at some point, if the ruler does stupid enough stuff, numbers are not on his side and there will be some kind of an overthrow or, or, or revolution. Um, what does it mean to redefine that? And, and I would say that we have subverted social contracts with with manipulation in a major way in the West. I mean, I know that sounds out there a little bit, maybe to some of you, but we are, we are our emotions are manipulated with such precision. I think it would shock a lot of you. Um, Social media has laid that just wide open for all of us to see. You can just get totally derailed by a complete stranger on the internet and suddenly your whole mental world has been flipped into something completely different. I mean, that's not an accident and that's not unknown. Um, so the social contract piece, very light on the details, really, really important stuff that we got to hammer out there. And it had better be Democratic. Or I, we had all better have some kind of baseline, you know, they call that the Bill of Rights. Like, <laughs> here's Here are the things you are um, kind of naturally do just as a human, just for existing. They, they want to rewrite that story a little bit. And I don't think that's going to go anywhere near. Um, it's just not going to be in anyone's benefit at all. That would be my guess they they did allude to reduce consumption and this is this feeds back into the energy problem we have all on an energy basis we have all been living by like kings for for way too long even um even the poor among us and i i don't mean to be harsh or rude i i i do understand i've been poor myself a time or two and it sucks it's tough it's 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 hell in a lot of respects but that being said even when you're you're broke um Man, we have things that that just some people could only, I couldn't even imagine having access to in the past. And we just, we take it for granted. Um, the dog's barking at something. And then the big thing here, obviously, we, we, we kind of pointed out the increased oversight regulation, however you want to think about that. I think it's gonna come in a, a number of different ways, but at the individual level too. So not just industries and companies, but, I think surveillance is going to basically be baked into all of this. And you know that's a problem, and and we know that's a problem, or we used to know, we used to care. Do you remember Edward Snowden? Back, was that 2012 when he released that trove of data about um, totally wanton surveillance in in Europe and in the US of of their own citizens, and everyone lied. The director of the NSA lied to Congress. I mean, the head of an agency lying to Congress is nothing new, I get it, but you know, um, William Binney did a great did a great documentary called um, was it a good American or a good patriot something something along those lines I'll try to find a link and put it in the description but it's basically about how he built a really good um, metadata analysis tool for the NSA that also respected everyone's privacy that they were like no thanks you're not you're not ringing the register enough for our uh, private Public partnerships. Basically, all the folks staffed at the NSA were either former employees of, of the public sector sector of intelligence work, or were going to be after they were done work be after they were done working in government. So, like, there's this. I, you guys know, but come on. Um, the the oversight and surveillance piece is is big too because I, it feeds back into the social contracts. If I don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy, I don't have a bill of rights. And I think what's going to come if if these planners get what they really want is just gonna to be total destruction of any any kind of semblance of privacy at all, especially if we're not careful. And they were, once again, fuzzy on the details. So my general thoughts on the book, you know, as you can probably tell, I, I wasn't really impressed. Um, and I don't say that because I, I just wanna trash these guys. I for somebody that, that someone that has two PhDs, I expected a lot more coherent explanation. Um, I was a little disappointed. They are clear on the reasons, and and I I agree with some of their reasons. I think they've got some things right, and they're very clear that COVID nineteen is the opportunity. Um, so juxtapose this week's video with last week's, especially the content about you know this all this being conspiracy nonsense. Uh, you know, I'm reading their stuff, you idiots. Give me a break. Um, This is is their book. Um, It generally left me with a lot more questions. And that's why I ended up, I've got to frame the end of this like, hey, here's the questions we should be asking. Here's how we should be thinking about it. And if you're in the right position, maybe here's the questions you should be asking your elected officials. Because I think even at the state level, there's some awareness of this. Um, There were a couple of really what I thought were silly, logical inconsistencies that, that the authors made that I wanted to point out here. And I hope that you guys have a clear view of this. I was trying to do a snap of my highlights on the Kindle reader on my PC, but I can't access my highlights, so I did it from my phone. Um, the first of which here has to do with, well, let's just go into it. He, he, he writes in, early in the book on page 58, uh, as dr- democracies grew stronger throughout the 20th century, Uh, After the First World War. In the 1930s, the remit of national statistics was extended to capture the economic welfare of the population, yet distilled into the form of GDP. Economic welfare became equivalent to current production and consumption, with no consideration given to the future availability of resources. Policymakers' over reliance on GDP as an indicator of economic prosperity has led to the current state of natural and social resource depletion." So right here, he makes a very, I think, correct statement about over-reliance on a very narrow, barely two-dimensional uh, metric like, like gross domestic product. Um, and and look, policymakers over-reliance on GDP as an indicator of economic prosperity has led to all this, and, and I think he's not not wrong there. A very short 13 pages later, he starts to cut discussing Japan and some of the deflationary problems that Japan has had, and they had a big bust in their asset markets, real estate, stocks, things like that, back in the late 80s, and they have been printing their way out of it ever since, for 30 years. Uh, the Bank of Japan, their central bank, I think is like, owns like 75% of ETF assets in that country. There isn't really a banking system. Uh, not, not in the traditional sense, at least. He goes to defend them using an interest, interesting metric. The possible, quote, Japanification of the rich world is often depicted as a hopeless combination of no growth, no inflation, and insufferable debt levels. This is misleading. When the data is adjusted for demographics, Japan does better than most. Hmm? Its GDP per capita is high and growing. And since 2007, its real GDP per member of the working age population has risen faster than in any other G7 country. Uh, that is a really, I mean, you're a PhD in economics, huh? I just got a few books and I, I try to think as, as critically and independently as possible. And this, this just jumped out of the page. Right at me, you know. You you correct you correctly admonish policymakers for focusing on GDP, and then you <laughs> then you mischaracterize Japan in a number of ways. So you use the GDP per capita. Oh, all right. Well, you're still using the wrong the wrong metric. Look at the working age population among uh, the Japanese aged 15 to 64. It has fallen from a peak of around 86 and a half million in the mid 90s to 75, no, less than 75, a little over 74 million today. So your population has fallen by more than 10%. That's gonna have a huge impact on GDP per per working age individual. Um, (laughs) He looks at real GDP per per capita of the working age population as the working age is, is collapsing and as GDP is, one of the inputs to GDP is um, fun- uh, not fungible; is manipulatable because it's based on on fiat. It, it's price, price in yen. Well, we've been they've been tr- they've been printing yen or trying to print yen for a long time. Um, hasn't worked out too great for them. Here's another thing: this is their just their public gross debt to GDP is over two hundred percent. It's either lazy or just ignorant or you if you intellectually dishonest it's a potentially it's 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 a number of things it it was a silly mistake that that really jumped out at me um one more here is klaus argues on page 90 of the book at least in the kindle version uh, today, the situation is fundamentally different. In the, in the intervening decades in the Western world, the role of the state has shrunk considerably. He's talking about basically the last 30 or 40 years that the state has, has plays a smaller role in the West. I, I that, okay. I know that the, the story is that Reagan deregulated, and, and perhaps that's true, but all of these big companies that benefited from deregulation worked through the state to to gain power and and protect their power and some the state and, and massive business the lines between the two have been blurring for a long time so i i just don't quite buy that the state plays a a smaller role in the west in any respect in life versus a hundred years ago um and then so that was on page 90 two pages later he's talking about responses to covid and he says only government had the power capability and reach to make such decisions without which economic calamity and a complete social meltdown would have prevailed looking to the future governments will most likely but with different degrees of intensity decide that it's in the best interest of society to rewrite some of the rules of the game and permanently increase their role interesting (laughs) interesting use of the word permanently Um, apparently the government has, has the power to just permanently make things so, uh, public be damned. Just another, this one isn't as, as I guess, shocking, but just, just lazy and and kind of intellectually lazy and, and not very, not very PhD like, to be honest with you. Um, so he's, he's arguing with one hand that the role of the state has fallen. And in the other hand saying, but only the state has the power to actually solve any of these problems. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, again, just not, not really impressed. Um, and, and here's some more evidence to kind of talk about, well, what things would you expect to see of a state, a governing body with a, a declining role in certain, I mean, you wouldn't expect to see all federal employees be pretty much flat. I mean, look. This is 1940. There were not even a million. Obviously, World War II and a lot of the New Deal legislation kicks in. You've got a, a huge expansion of the federal workforce to almost 3.2 million. But I mean, hey, we're we're at over 2.8 million today and steady. It did fall. So yeah, maybe um, it rose through the 80s and then plateaued early 90s. So not. Not a ton of evidence of overwhelming growth, not a ton of evidence of uh, a lesser role either. Um, Looks like the the second one was broken. I think it was uh, tax receipts. They're shock shockingly over the last 80 years, they've gone up into the right. I I wouldn't say that a a country that increasingly taking in more taxes has is playing less of a role. Um, But you know, that such is life uh, in the book of COVID-19 The great reset Um, and there were more than a couple of of examples of just kind of that that laziness as, as I see it I lost my image on the reverse engineering and here's the thing I think it's a problem I'm gonna have to edit this out again all right edit out at one hour Okay, so we're picking it up back at one hour, one minute, and about 45 seconds. All right, so the next piece of this, we're gonna end it on just a little bit of reverse engineering on what I think we're gonna start seeing and and how we need to think about it. So um, what we have here is a picture of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. And you know, these are, I guess, mildly interesting. I, uh, here, let's go through them. Okay, no poverty by twenty thirty. Yes, these goals all are aimed to be implemented by twenty thirty 2030 or twenty thirty five. Uh, you see references to both years. I, they're not totally consistent with how they use that, but whatever. Um, no poverty. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna solve the the poverty problem once and for all. Uh, no hunger. Okay. Um, good health and well-being, I'm assuming kind of for everyone, quality education for everyone, uh, gender equality, okay, um, clean water and sanitation, okay, affordable and clean energy, decent work and economic growth, So decent, I'm kind of playing up to maybe dignity there, uh, industry, innovation, and infrastructure, that's not, okay, uh, more of that, I guess, Reduced inequalities. Okay. Sustainable cities and community communities, responsible consumption and production, climate action, life below water, life on land, peace, justice, and strong institutions and partnerships for the goals. Um, okay. So what this looks like to me, lots of lofty things we all want. I mean, I would love no poverty and no hunger and Everyone to be awesome and totally equal, I guess treated equally by by other humans, and those in power. That that makes sense, um, but but this is impossible to organize and manage. The human history, modern human history, is kind of a, a one big story of of conflict between normal people and those that rule them. And they're always coming up with stuff like this to get us to sign on to something that we don't really understand. Um, no poverty, like okay, you're gonna just solve it. Just no poverty, you're gonna make it so. No hunger, we're just gonna, um, we're just gonna solve it. Maybe we'll have to take it from somebody. I, it just strikes me, this is, this is the kind of crap nonsensical pie-in-the-sky propaganda you see right before a terribly um, foolish authoritarian regime gets gets power it just it just strikes me as like something I would expect a seven-year-old to put together and and hey good for you I like how you're thinking and that's a cool chart you made there Timmy but um, this just seems dishonest you're gonna you're gonna do this in 15 years okay I will take the other side of that bet Um, Some things that really stand out. Obviously, this whole thing plan, this whole plan, hinges on modern monetary theory (MMT), magic money trees, all of the names for for modern monetary theory. And here's the thing about MMT: is it's it's none of what is in its name. Uh, Ben Hunt says it's not modern, it's it's not monetary, and it's not a theory. It's 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 just currency debasement. This is the this is a tale as old as time we will just print money and hopefully get some kind of growth to hide that or you know maybe totally invent nuclear fusion at the modular pocket level I uh, this is fiscal spending this is currency debasement this is clipping clipping the uh, silver content this is. This is wheelbarrows of of marks. This this is not what you want to do. Now it could work for a while. In fact, I think it's likely that if we do get massive fiscal spending to the tune of like five to ten trillion over the next couple of years, yeah, it it is going to have an impulsive impact. Like you will see an impulse of of uh, growth from that. The problem is, is behavior will quickly change. Um, quickly you're risking you're risking hyperinflation which is maybe one of the worst outcomes because it's it's like collapse that regular people can't afford like deflationary collapse is still collapse it's bad but like you can if you have a little bit of cash you can probably buy some stuff for cheap or if you have a little bit of assets you know going through it like you can you can move your your chess pieces on the board a little bit better but in Inflationary in uh, game sucks. Uh, and, and just a, a few reminders I wanted to, to point out: debt is not money, and and all fiat is debt. It's 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 a, literally it's a debt money system. So debt is not money. It, it is fiat. It's currency. Currency and money are different things. Um, currency can just be willed into existence. In my opinion, real money has. Comes from an exploding star <laughs> when when all of our you know when the when the precious metals are, are made early in a in a planet's life cycle. Um, <clears throat> this is this is something that has been lost. This is lost knowledge. It's becoming it's being found again, but among my my age cohort and, and even some of the baby boomers out there like like my dad and uh, some other folks, it, it just we do not understand money. Um, and importantly, the likes, the folks that have really been pushing the MMT train down the tracks, Stephanie Kelton from University of Cambridge, I don't know, some college. She's an economist. She's on Bernie Sanders' economic team. Uh, she's, I think, kind of the, the mama bear of, of modern monetary theory. And the idea is you can't go bankrupt in your own currency. And it's just, it's just utter nonsense. Um, the limiting factor to how much currency you can print is very basic. It's, it's demand. Not only is it basic, it's simple. It's, it's one factor. Will people buy your paper? If people stop buying your paper, you, you've gone. Like we don't owe this money to ourselves. There are many, many holders of our debts. Now we get away with it because they have to hold our debt because we have a reserve currency, and that's great. We get to, we get to puke and vomit as much worthless paper into the world as we possibly can conjure up and they send us they send us their real goods. I mean, it's not a very clear hearts or I'm sorry, not a very full hearts trade, but it's a profitable trade. It's a hell of a hell of a thing to get away with, especially if you can do it for as long as we have 40 50 years. Um, but but that is that is clearly the the end game is no your paper becomes paper again. You can't go bankrupt in your own currency. It's just it's it assaults it assaults the uh, critical mind. I, I just, or even just the thinking mind, or, or the, there's zero historicity for that. And history, like, what does the historical record show? Like, Nobody has ever inflated their way into prosperity or printed their way into prosperity. It, never, it's never happened. Every currency, every fiat goes to zero. It's not money. And central bankers generally have, have a proven track record of abject failure. Um, if, if you're really paying attention the last 12 years, it's just failure. So to my point about external demand for our debt, like this is uh, the tick report from September. Um, this is foreign international or foreign holdings of, of treasury securities. They, they've they got foreign official holdings. So that's foreign central banks, 4.2 trillion grand total of, of foreign treasury paper held out there, 7 trillion. I mean, that's that's, that's who you go bankrupt to. (laughs) You can't go bankrupt to your own currency. It's just, when you need unicorns to exist, apparently you just invent them. Um, And this is a great chart from Wolf Street. And he sourced it from the Treasury Department, which is where I got that tick report. Uh, This shows total percentage of of debt being treasuries held by foreigners, that's been falling. So of the of all the debt foreigners hold, and this doesn't say foreign official or private, so maybe it's both. I don't know. So it would be central banks and you know like foreign banks and non non financials. Um, but they're holding less U.S. debt or less Treasury debt as a percentage of their total debt. But they've already got you know there it is seven trillion. I mean how. How long and how much can we stuff Treasury paper down the throats of our trading partners before they kind of start to work on a different system? Which, if you're in, if you're in the Luke Groman camp, and if you don't know who he is, I highly rec- recommend you check him out on Twitter. I think it's just Luke Groman at Luke Groman, um, and he runs a research service, Forest for the Trees LLC, just does independent macro research. He's a great read. It's like eighty bucks a year. Uh, highly recommend. His thesis is that China is working on using gold as a, a neutral reserve reserve asset, and actually kind of buys the US and out too. If you can devalue the dollar against gold, you can actually devalue your dollar and, and not have to worry about fighting other countries to, to export your deflation. That's really, what, we're trying to get some inflation. I think they will ultimately overdo it, but the path, there's still opportunity in the path. Um, you can still make some moves, I think, to to be prepared for that and not get totally blindsided by it. But, but ultimately what he's, what his thesis is is that there's already the the foreign demand for treasury paper is already nearing its max. We've all, we've already almost tapped out the, uh, the tab. And this leaves obviously fiscal policy, highly dependent on the actions of, of, you know, a rising power in China, maybe, maybe the power of the 21st century, um, Depending on how things unfold, there, this relationship is not permanent, and and folks happen to be political. You know, they're on the economic left or, or whatever. They, they, they don't they don't want to face that reality, and it it is a I mean it's written in stone effectively in terms of what we know. I you can't get away with it, I guess, unless you just turn everybody into slaves. Um, but you know, has, since when has has risk of of massive major societal issues, when has that ever stopped any of these folks? Central bankers or or governors uh, really showing their their uh, rear ends with their coronavirus responses and policies, and then their lack of adherence to those very, um, yeah, rules for rules for thee, but not for me. Um, but knowing that this all really hinges on currency debasement is is a great leg up for us because it will help us avoid, at the very least, total obliteration. I'll tell you just off the bat, the average 60-40 portfolio is not built to handle inflation at all. That that 40 piece is going to get decimated. Um, but it looks like what that does or what they're trying to do with that that currency debasement is, is to, to engineer another even bigger bubble. We're already sitting on top of the largest asset bubble ever ever created, uh, but maybe they're just going to attach some strings to that bubble, and, and those strings are going to come in the form of, of an expanded role of government, um, and that's one of the very few things that the authors are clear about on on the website, in the book, and and some of the uh, other other papers I, I perused is this all also hinges on not only MMT but expanded role of government, um, and that begs no, nah, it doesn't beg that's that's the wrong way to use that that should lead us to ask well should they have that power from where we stand today is that should they be more or less powerful than they are today i am i am um, all in on they They should not they, they have we have already left the realm of of um, the power like the power differential even being something that i think is even up for debate i mean we People have increasingly less power um, because the government is just too stinking big. And massive companies that are in bed with the government are too stinking big. Um, no mention in the book about whether or not this expansion of power is going to be part of a democratic process. I mean, other than voting in the general or maybe in a, a race for Congress. I just voting is not doing the things that that people like to believe it does for them when they show up to the polls and we need political action outside of just going rah-rah and punching a ticket every four years it's just it's not it's unserious it's not it's not a real it's not real political involvement uh and and one question i have for these folks that we should kind of mull over is how are they going to treat people that don't want to be a part of this are they going to humiliate them and shame them into changing their mind? Kind of turn public opinion against them? Are they Are they going to be like, all right, you can go live in Ankapistan, or you know? I, I doubt it. Um, how much How heavy is the boot they're going to use to to enforce this? Things that we will start seeing: um, devices, contact tracing, just. Technology becoming more invasive. This, this we we already have existing issues that we have yet to address. Andrew Yang was a candidate on the left, um, who actually I think was nailed this. And I don't know much about his other policies other than he he also wants to print money. doesn't think that's a problem that would make his entire platform worthless. But um, one thing he did get right, and I can definitely get behind, is that he thinks that that your data, metadata, basically is your property. And I, I couldn't agree more. And here's why. The, the, the reason is, if you can take my metadata and basically get to know me on such an intimate level that you can flare my emotions and, and trick me into buying things or whatever, you know me better, I mean, or as well as like my, my wife. And I should have some say on whether or not I want you to have that knowledge of me. That information belongs to me, and I should be able to decide who I share it with, and on what terms, and for how long, and for what ends. Um, and we have we have not addressed these issues in this country at all, or in Europe. And that's I'm not about to give them. I'm not about to give them. Uh, you know, it's like your your doctor's like doing surgery on you, and in the middle of the operation, he's like, "Oh, do you want me to go ahead and remove this?" Uh, like, dude, I don't I haven't seen the results of the first surgery yet. Let me. Let me see if you merit, you know, your uh, me giving you my trust, and also what is this going to be a Hobson's choice? Like we're going to be like, well, you can either get common pass or proof of a vaccine to travel on this plane, or you cannot travel. That's not a choice. Um, that is that is a false choice. That is a choice architecture, as the epsilon theory folks would say. And really, you know, the big thing is, uh, I, I think I think this presents a massive threat to our autonomy of mind. And if you don't, okay, you should be asking that question um, because it matters. Autonomy of, of mind is, in my estimation, what makes you who you are. And you should not give that up. So let's turn the map around here. In order to achieve these goals, I would think it pretty likely they would need to reduce human to human interaction or at least put a stigma on it they would need to collect data so there would be that big huge need to get everyone uh, you know check it in with their health stats and and wearing the the heart rate monitor there would just be a huge need for data collection so you would just see a ton of i would think uh, kind of like an invasion of data collectors and i have, i've already seen that at, at work and other places everyone wants to know what my blood pressure is like what <laughs> Why? That um, you know, and we always say, "Oh, they want to save some money on their health insurance." Yeah, companies—that's probably the most likely reason. But governments and and people that have shown a penchant for wanting to manipulate people—I I don't want to give them that. Um, I—they need to devalue the currency now. People think that's happening now. Timing—I think they're wrong on timing. The inflation's coming. I, I don't think we've seen. We. St- I'm still. Love me or hate me, and it's been a long time of people hating me uh, for for being kind of deflationary. But I still think we have to have a, a, a solvency or an insolvency event from from COVID nineteen. I think we're close. You know what? If we don't have it by May, I'm wrong. I'm wrong. We're gonna we're, we, we're gonna somehow transition to to like stagflation first. Um, what else? Like what else? Oh. Let's not play that video yet. What other things might we expect to see from a narrative perspective if if this were the plan? And this is this is way more qualitative, um, and I'm kind of just drawing on on memory a little bit. But you know the idea of alternative foods, um, and you would expect to see missionaries espouse those ideas like and what what is a missionary a missionary is, is someone in the public eye that that you know people like like a, an actor or a, a politician everyone loves or you know a, a ceo like a you know a jamie diamond he's definitely a missionary um people just as as uh, they default to giving the missionaries a lot of credence and credibility and they've they've been doing that like uh, jay-z was a big jay-z was a big uh There's a big story, I think it was a year or two ago, about, you know, they're vegan now. He and Beyonce are like, oh, we're kicking meat. And there's been Beyond Meat and Alternative Meat. Oh, we can just raise this meat in a lab um, that had a splash in markets because they raised a bunch of capital. Uh, Oh, we're going to turn bugs into food. There's just been lots of weird, like, national level pieces the past few years about, oh, we we can eat dirt and and meat that isn't meat and stuff that we grow. And it's like, I don't really want to. Uh, Oh, but. If this is what you want to do, I could see why you would want to start prepping the terrain in my head to accept that. Um, that's that's been a that's been an interesting thing to, to watch. Another thing is just growth and excitement and technology, uh, which I think we've seen a lot of. Um, sorry, I just I heard something through my and uh, I lost my presentation. In any event, we'll finish it on here. I. You know, te- there are cool things about technology, but I am not up for techno fascism. <laughs> you know, I do not want to be a slave to technology. And it, 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 uh, hmm. I don't know. I have concerns. Um, I'd expect to see weird things in markets. So we've already seen those this, this year. We saw, uh, front month oil back in March or April. The May contract traded at like negative. 35 or something like that i mean we've seen some weird stuff already and i think we're going to continue to see more inflated volatility with stocks at highs with bonds yields did back up roman almost at one percent I, th- I think it's a good time to buy to buy uh bonds here to buy treasuries but um you know the money printing currency devaluation and then obviously you would you would see an effort in the media, especially to change the perceptions of liberty, and we have seen that on the backs of coronavirus in a really obvious way. Kind of you know this idea that uh, your liberty isn't isn't worth my health, and I, I I I don't think that's a fair way to frame it at all. Um, anytime I leave my house or anyone, anytime any of us leave our house, we're kind of like agreeing to a baseline level of risk. Um, and you're responsible for it and for yourself once you're out there in the wild wild world so these are things that i'm really going to be plugged into watching unfold from a narrative perspective and just kind of watching the headlines um and this this video i did not show last time this was made in 2016 this was from the world economic forum and you know these are the calls they're making for the next decade let's take a look You'll own nothing and you'll be happy. Well, whatever you want, you'll rent and it will be delivered by drone. Oh, cool. Wait, rent? The US won't be the world's leading superpower. Okay, sure. A handful of countries will dominate. Who? Why? How? Did their populations choose that? You won't die waiting for an organ donor. Why? Guess so we'll print one. It's an organ printer. That's crazy. Not happening. Oh, you'll eat much less meat. Oh. Will I? <laughs> uh, you're just kind of telling me uh, what's going to happen to me. Like, well, do I have a say? Will you eat much less meat, Mr. Schwab and company? Um... It'll be an occasional treat. I don't know what's going on with the internet here, so we're just gonna kill this for now. Basically, the thrust of this video, and I'm I'm pushing, I'm pushing my time limit here. So the thrust of the video is these things are gonna be different, and we're we're you're kind of not going to have a choice. But you'll be happy. You'll be fine. You'll like it. And I, I just Man, talk about being tone deaf. Read, read, read the room of like the average dude just or or, or dude at the average guy or gal trying to make a living in, in some any country. Just they're getting they're getting totally screwed and they're sick of it. They're they're getting pretty angry. We express that anger in bad ways, but you know, um, it's just tough to uh, it's it's tough to digest all this. I know this is a lot, but. This gives us really important information. Uh, One more thing that that I'll throw out there which we will expect to see, we're starting to see now, is central bank bank digital currencies. Uh, Crypto that's that's backed by central banks will not long retain the premise of crypto. It's like digital hard money if you're a Bitcoiner, but it won't be once the central bank is touching it because they're not going to share the policy dashboard with you know pirates that make their own currency, that's crazy. Um, so we are going to pay really close attention to those items as this year unfolds. I'm going to do everything in my power to put out weekly or as near weekly content as I can, and uh, that'll include a substack here to, to write out some more of my better informed stuff, um, or not better informed, some of my more uh, actionable items. That, that I think you'll you'll get a lot lot out of, especially if you're in the market world. So um, I want to leave you with a, a quote from Dune. I am just about finished with it. It was my first read-through. It's, it's such a good book. But um, this, this is a, a great quote about how to treat fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. I I loved that quote so much um, because fear is a powerful emotion. It's a a powerful feeling that all of us have from time to time. And what it does too often today is it, it sets us in stone. It paralyzes us. When we're afraid, we, we, we're not able to quickly access our fight or flight function or reaction function and, and create enough time to make enough snap decisions to, to get us off that immediate ax or that immediate you know, position of danger. Um, and, and fear is an emotion. We, all of the world's smartest people know how much this pulls on us and, and it's used against us. And I just I wanted to put a positive message out there to to all of you that hey we need to focus on facing that and not remaining um, that deer in the headlights that gets sideswiped by the Mack truck. I mean we we need to get off the road. And if you are constantly afraid, and more importantly, if you are constantly engaging in the things that make you constantly afraid, certain social media or reading certain things or watching certain. Cut it out until you can create enough um, control over that fear to, to take action. Because action is what we all need to be doing. Um, pretty much, you know, all hands on deck at this point. Chris Martinson over at Peak Prosperity put it in a really powerful way. Um, he did a video on this a couple of weeks ago. And he said, whatever you think about doing today in response to this, uh, you will look back and, and it will not be enough. Um, so get to work. If you've got a garden, tend it. If you don't have a garden, get one. And and that can be a, a metaphor you know, for a lot of different things. Maybe this is part of my garden as well. Um, so that does it for the second show. I did run a little long today, but I hope again, you guys got a lot out of this. Thank you for your interaction and engagement feedback. I appreciate that. Um, the next episode, we're going to talk quickly about implications for you and what to start doing. And how to start preparing. So it's going to be a little bit more market-oriented for you, market folks out there. Um, that's up, that's it for this show. I really appreciate again all of your uh, all of your time, and look forward to bringing you the the last video in this series soon. So stay healthy, stay well, and we will see you next time. Take care.